What is most important is that you figure out how good somebody could be, and then you help them uncover the fact that they are. I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn how to be a better leader. I'm going to learn how to have the right conversation. And that is exactly the mindset you need to have. You need to be able to recognize your mistake, your own mistakes, and your own failure. You do need to come together as a collective, where that collective also has an identity. Welcome back, or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Gervais, by trade and training a high-performance psychologist. And today I'm excited to welcome you to our inaugural best of episode. The Finding Mastery Podcast has been running for about seven years now. We have over 400 episodes. And as a result, we have gained extraordinary insights and timeless wisdom from some of the top thinkers and doers in the world. While there is no single golden thread to how the best in the world operate, there are some common themes and skills and insights that many of our guests have utilized on their path of mastery. To that end, in this best of series, we'll be compiling insights from some of our favorite episodes organized around a specific topic. This episode is about what it takes to build high-performing teams. You'll hear from game changers like Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, Toto Wolf, Executive Director and Managing Partner at Mercedes Formula One, former CEO of J. Crew and Victoria's Secret, Jan Singer, and so many more. Though each of these individuals have unique personal philosophies and core values and historical experiences, you'll hear quite a bit of overlap when it comes to their central drivers for success in building high-performing teams. Now, we could have cut this episode a dozen different ways. We've had so many incredible leaders on this podcast, it was nearly impossible to choose which conversations to highlight. So let us know if you like this format and what subjects interest you. There's plenty more to choose from for a volume two and three and beyond. And with that, let's jump right into the first installment of our best of series on high-performing teams. The first guest we'll hear from is an extraordinary leader and someone I was fortunate to work with for many years, Pete Carroll, head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. We had him on the podcast in front of a live audience. So this is a special one for many reasons. In Seattle, we committed to building a high performance team on the foundation of a relationship-based culture. The approach involves deeply committing to helping individuals discover who they are, what makes them unique, what drives them, how to best communicate to effectively forge a connection so that we can help bring them closer to expressing their unique potential. When I hear you talk, I don't, I don't hear coach. I hear an animated human that wants others to do well, right? Like living with passion, dealing with the hard things, having an idea of what is possible staying with it day in and day out, even when it's hard, and having deep care for other people. So by profession, you're a coach, but it doesn't seem like there's a limitation in, in the way that you're thinking about your life, right? So you're not bound by, I'm a manager, I'm a coach, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a, there's something larger than that. Yeah, well, there's no way. I mean, let's, 
let me take another step here. I don't think there's any way that you can be really good at what you're doing unless you have a real clarity and a real, kind of a clear vision of what you're trying to do. And you, I don't think you can do that unless you have a really good understanding of what you're all about and where you come from, what you stand for, uh, what are your uncompromising principles, what are your beliefs. Um, because you're in a coaching aspect or in a leadership aspect, you're exposed People are looking at you, they're hearing you, they're watching you, you're, you're challenged by the issues and the concerns and the decisions that you make. And if you can't find a consistency and a clarity that you can exhibit of what you stand for and what's important to you, I don't know how you make it. You know, if you're trying to be somebody else, you're going to falter. You're not going to be able to be that somebody else consistent, consistently. So there, there's an understanding and a depth that's really important. And I think it really goes back to the individual. Again, I would say whether you're coaching, whether you're leading, whether you're managing, whether you know, you're running a business, whatever it is, there's people around you that are responding to you and they'll respond best when they can clearly understand what you're all about. And so that takes work. Okay. So walk us through some of that work. And, I, and then I want to also put a pin in this because I want to go back to one of the things you talk about with passion. So where do you want to start? Do you want, do you want to go back up to passion for a minute or do you want to walk through like how you develop your philosophy? Let's, let's go there. I, mean, I think it's really important um, if to understand what we represent and what we stand for in, in our beliefs and, and really the work that we do together and the partnership that we have. It begins with caring for the people around us. And if we're going to care for the people around us, how far are we going to go? How, when will we stop and start? I mean, how, how far, well, when, like, I'm care, but not that much, you know, <laughs> how are we going to do that? Well, the way that we think, we're, we are really committed, you know, our, our formula is being committed to the individual so that no matter where we have to go or what we have to do, we will compete to figure out what it takes to help that individual person figure out who they are, what they're all about how we can communicate best with them, how we can uh, generate um, a, a connection with them so that we can eventually take them where they potentially could go. And so uh, to me, that, that goes all, all the way back to philosophy. And where we start is in helping people discover who they are and what they're all about. I've been kind of trapped in this thought forever that everybody has a philosophy but they might not know what it is, you know, and, and they have a philosophy because you have things that you believe in. You have things that govern your life. You have the decisions that you make exhibit who you are and what you're all about. But you might not have taken the time to step back and take a look at that collection of all the things that represent who you, what you do on a regular basis and what you stand for, the car you drive, the toothpaste you choose, what radio stations do you listen to, what music do you listen to, what colors do you like? Those are all choices that we make, but often, most often, people don't take the time to step back and put those thoughts together and say, oh, that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm all about. You see it in glimpses, but I think through the process, you can come to a point where you can find real clarity, and it's such a powerful discovery process once you go through and do the work. It's not impossible work. It's just, you just got to do it, you know, and so... I think it's so important to start there. Let's, let's say, let's say, let's go like in, I don't know, to coaches, to your coaches. How do you demonstrate deep care? Or no, maybe I'm adding the word deep. How do you demonstrate care? By listening first and, and accepting, you know, right, whatever they represent, who they are, 
without questioning. I noticed that from you. It, that's, I mean, I yep. want to listen and care and, and, and show that what they think, what they stand for, what's important to them is really important to me to understand it. And, and the idea is, the base idea that goes way back is we, with my coaches or the people we work with, it's learning the learner. I need to learn the person that I'm dealing with so that I can understand who they are so that I can best serve them. And so uh, being a great teammate is being a, a, someone that serves others. And, and, and so I'm just trying to be a good teammate and make sure that I, I'm doing my part. And that comes from caring so much that you're willing to listen even when they're telling you stuff you don't want to hear, or even when they're representing something that you don't understand, and and then caring enough to try to figure out why would they think that, you know, where are they coming from there, as opposed to no, that's not right. You're when, not. You when know, you get frustrated, I don't, I don't agree with that. Do you get frustrated? Sure. Okay. So then, when you're frustrated, and it's clear, wasn't it? When you get frustrated, how do you stay? Now we're getting into the art of coaching, right? Because. There's, there's something going on inside. All you, of this is about the art of coaching. Everything we're talking about, from my perspective, right. that's what we're talking about. So when you got something going on inside, your trigger, so to speak, and somebody comes to you with a new idea or something they're frustrated with, and you're already activated. And I can think about this scenario where it's like with a kid or you know your child or it's a peer or it's a, somebody you're reporting up to, not in your case, but like... But when you got stuff going on, how do you regulate so that you can do that thing to listen if, well, as a demonstration of care? Really well. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, try to do it really, really well. By, and that's, it comes back, as we know, it comes back to being willing to be connected in the moment to care enough that you'll, whatever else is going on, you're going to be there. Now, my mind... My mind races quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, it, you know, I can, I, I can get distracted. So I have to really practice. I have to really focus. I have to be really good at it because I don't want to miss the moment. I don't want to miss the opportunity to hear somebody say something to me that's going to make a difference in the rest of our relationship. You know, it might be coming. So that's as we we try to stand for uh, how valuable it is to have the discipline to be mindful. You know, it's so important. And that's being in the moment, being present, uh, being open to whatever is going on around you, no matter what else you might be wanting to do, you know, in that moment, that exchange, I mean, you got me and I'm there. That's the, that's the, cha that's the challenge. That's frustrating for me. Right. You asked about being frustrated yeah. because, you know, you have to work at it. You have to really care. And there's a discipline to that. Let's, let's talk about confidence and building confidence. It's an extraordinary endeavor when, uh, when like you coach a big team with a lot of players and all that, um, because the effort is what is most important is that you figure out how good somebody could be, and then you help them uncover the fact that they are. Some people have a false sense of confidence. The we, we work our way through that, but the confidence level is so. <laughs> we, the, the, the confidence level that we're trying to find it has to happen in, in, through experience, and we have to help them understand what they're worthy of believing in themselves. Because if you're in the model of performing in, in performing really well, you have to have a level of confidence that you can believe in and trust. So we have to put them in situations to be successful. That's hugely important and give them an opportunity to start to feel their value and their connection and what they're capable of so that we can then begin to ask them uh, that, to, to repeat that level of performance. And, what, and in essence, my job is to prove to somebody how good they are.
That's how I look at it. I got to prove to them how good they are. So how many ways can I go about doing that? What do I have to do to get that done? We'll show film. We'll put them in situations. We'll, we'll show highlights. We'll uh, compare them. We'll, we'll talk their way through it. We'll walk their way through it in every way to get them to understand what they're capable of. And, and, and as we start to build on that and build on the successes, then now they have a, a, a reason to be confident. As you build that, you give them a chance to trust themselves. That's what we know. Trust is so, so valuable in performance. And, and trust in yourself is what's most crucial. Let's use this. Jump the example. Let's be uh, Michael Jordan. Do you think Michael Jordan ever worried about a game-winning shot? Well, yeah, he did. He worried about, give me another chance so I can make another one. <laughs> you know, he was so confident. Well, not everybody's like that, but that is... That's what you're shooting for. You're trying to take people to the level of confidence where they have so much belief in themselves and so much reason to trust that they're going to come through when the time comes because they are, have a clearer mentality. Confidence leads to the, the ability to, to, to trust, leads to focus, so that now when you can focus at your best, you've ridden yourself from all the discursive thoughts and issues and concerns and expectations that you can perform like you're capable whether you're an individual, whether you're a, a team, you know, a whole group, it's just the same thing. If we take that scenario of the individual and then try to, we're talking about like this relationship-based approach, which is an important word for you, important phrase. If we were to take that, that's about an individual. How do you help a bunch of me's turn into the we? Yeah, well, you know, we've had in, in our history, we've had a lot of colorful players. Let's call them colorful players. And, and they've um, you know, been ex extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. competitors and, and contributors and champions and all of that, world class. And, uh, and I'm, I've always been asked, you know, how do you blend the, you know, the, the, the big egos you know, that some people would see it as, you know? Well, the, the challenge is, is, is to keep them connected to the common bond, which is team, which is the overall collective effort that we're all about. The, the most colorful of players are sometimes the greatest contributors. They're also going to be the greatest detractors as well if, if allowed to hang too long. If they don't fit, you, you got to go. They, you know, they have to go on and, and do something else. But as long as they're willing and it's imp crucially important to them that they are part of it, then the colorful side of it, the, the attitude, the approach, the outward, you know, the gregarious nature that they may bring, that only adds to the whole, you know, the whole complexion of the whole thing. So uh, that's an openness and, and also it's a, it's a willingness to accept uh, unique, extraordinary, special you know, people in their own way. I like to think that everybody is unique and, and, and special in their own way. And we just need to figure out what it is and, and, and uncover and, and, and bring that to the surface uh, so that they can truly be everything that they can possibly be. So we have always encouraged the uniqueness and encouraged that, that spontaneity and the, and the, the individuality that, that makes them them, you know, and, and not discouraged it. If you were to coach, and we've talked about like coaching a team, so a group of individuals, if you were to go way upstream and have a thought that you could, well, let me back up. There's two ways I want to ask this. In football, I've heard the phrase a bunch like, this is the install phase. Like you're going to install information in, into the person. And then in the, some of the ancient traditions, they talk about seeds. Like we all, like this non-conscious, we this gets a little weird, right? But we all have these seeds, the seed of love, the seed of greed, the seed of jealousy, the seed of hope. 
and how much time we spend watering those seeds, thinking about those seeds, those grow. Some are weeds, some are flowers. Okay. So the question is like, if we were to go way upstream to coaching the planet, coaching humanity, okay, whether it's watering seeds, you take this whatever way you want, what seeds would you water or what would you install? Yeah, that's really fun. Um, <laughs> Can I throw a couple lightning bolts down to anyone to think about this? Um, you know, I, I, the I'm pretty stuck on this thought. It's pretty hard for me to come away from uh, finding the willingness to care so much that you can help other people be extraordinarily themselves. I mean, that, how how could we share that that care that we would accept people and love people for where they are, who they are, and celebrate that, regardless of whether you understand it or you get it or you, you recognize the color or the shape or whatever they are. You know, that, that, that would be the coaching I would want to share. Let, let, how could we reach out and help people be so open-hearted and so open-minded and so loving that they would receive those that are around us and, 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 and help them become everything that they dream of being. You know, that, that's a, I mean, that's a big thought, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Um, that, that's cool. And it doesn't matter to me where you go or what you do. That's, that's kind of what I wish we could do, you know, and, I hate when we see other stuff and when people working against that thought and not acceptance and not openness and not caring and not, we're just missing, we're missing life, you know, when I think we're, we're not doing that. You know, I, I mean, it sounds like I'm going to, you're speaking to the choir, but I also just want to affirm, like when I hear that, I go, of course. I didn't know you were going to go there, but of course. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's a really good thought. It's, it's a powerful thought. It's, you know, it's one of the, Core principles, love, care for other people. I think when you, you have some basic needs met, um, if we go back to Maslow, you got some basic needs met, the needs of belong is satisfied, then it's kind of love and esteem, and then you can get into that flourishing self-action. See, I think that's winning. To me, that's winning. And, and uh, you know, you can't always win all the games. You know, you can't win every, every challenge that we face. You just can't. It just doesn't happen that way. But if you're working towards being your best and giving your best shot and bringing your best, that's, to me, that's winning. And that's what winning forever was a long time ago when we first, you know, shared that thought in the title of a book and all. Um, it was about striving to, to live fully to be the best you can be. That's, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Success for Pete is not only defined by records or standing or points scored, but on bringing your best self to any situation and more, being committed to seeing the best in others so that you can help them understand and realize their own unique and impressive capabilities. In Seattle, Pete and I agreed to develop a relationship-based, developmentally-minded program. We worked to create a culture and the conditions and the psychological best practices to help people be their very best. And in doing so, the media would often point to or say, you let the players be themselves. That egregiously misses the mark. Pete created an environment where it was psychologically safe enough for the players to be themselves. There's no letting taking place here. There's no letting people be themselves. He didn't give players permission. None of us hold that power or responsibility over another person. 
We set the conditions and then supported and challenged the players to be their very best consistently. We made a commitment to see the uniqueness of the person, celebrate that uniqueness and challenge them to bring it to practice and get right to their edge every day to not have to hide from or worry about or wonder if they're okay. Oftentimes, getting clear on that special part of an individual requires someone else to help wrestle it down. What is that? What is that special part of you relative to your unique life journey, your struggles, your celebrations, your talents that you have? What is it that makes you special? And how are you going to bring that forward? When you get it right, you get a bunch of people who feel seen, who feel supported, and held to a standard to do that consistently. The results? Increase creativity and innovation. You're not overly concerned about what people think about you. You're not constantly monitoring or censoring yourself out of fear of criticism. You are free to think outside of the box because there is no box. Enhanced performance happens. There's less energy that's wasted on managing perceptions and leaving more energy to focus on the task at hand, to be in the present moment. Authenticity fosters trust. When you're true to yourself, you lay the foundation for deeper, more meaningful connections with teammates. And of course, fun takes place. At the core, we are social animals. And when we live and work in environments where we feel connected, we thrive. There's no reason we can't have fun while being in intense environments. Fun is part of it now. Okay, quick pause here to share some of the sponsors of this conversation. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash findingmastery with the code Finding Mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the HIMSS app. 
track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And with that, let's jump right back into this conversation. Okay, sticking with the spirit of world-class coaches, the following conversation is with Jack Clark, the iconic and influential rugby coach from the University of California, Berkeley. Jack, the former head coach of the U.S. national rugby team, has led Berkeley to 29 national collegiate championships and doing that in 40 years. He's built a high-performance program that is, in many respects, the model for collegiate sports. I learned about Jack from my colleague and friend, Kevin Lake, who won a couple of national championships while playing under him at Berkeley. His appreciation and near reverence for Jack and the time they spent together shows up every time I bring up the name Jack Clark. Self-funded, a near 100% graduation rate with student athletes who make an impact across culture, have a lifelong connection with the program and continue to live long after they've left school. By the program's model, grateful for everything, entitled to nothing. His players graduate from Berkeley with, as Jack describes it, a PhD in team. Coaches come across the campus and across the world to get Jack's insights into team building. This is a man who has clear ideas about the value of team, what it takes to develop a high-performing team, and he even touches on what teams are not. Jack speaks with a credibility and an authenticity that's hard to come by. Let's listen in. I think sport does a poor job of explaining its value. You know, I, 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 hear, I hear my colleagues talk about, you know, the value of being an athlete or a student athlete is, is around hard work and it's... Um, um, it's around, you know, commitment, but I mean, at a world-class institution like this, I mean, you can find students in the library at midnight, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you want to talk about commitment and hard work. I don't know that that's proprietary to sport. I don't believe that. Um, I think the thing that is really proprietary to sport is team. And uh, I, I have this belief, right, that we're not one bright person away from solving the big issues. You know, we're, you know, we're not going to, not disease, not the environment, uh, uh, not education, not, I mean, just list the big problems that we're going to have to solve going forward. And um, it's going to be groups of people that solve those things. Um, people that can stand shoulder to shoulder, you know, point their nose in the same direction and work together, um, passionately work together. 
And, and I think that's what we're doing here, right? And um, that feels valuable. It, it feels, it feels you know, I'm, I'm happy to go toe-to-toe with any professor on this campus. Um, and I, I, I don't diminish any of that, but I, it's not taught anywhere else on this campus. I, I'd like to believe that, you know, our players are, you know, are getting the unofficial PhD in team. They're, they're getting a really an acute understanding of team. You know, they know what a good teammate looks like and, and the effect that they can have. They know what a bad teammate is, unbearably, right? They, I mean, I mean, these young people are, they're past, you know, the 10,000 hours, 10 year moment. I mean, they're, they're becoming an expert in team. And especially if we, if, if we make that, that's what we're doing here (laughs) and it's going to help us win some rugby games. But at the end of the day, that's the thing that is going to be, you know, the takeaway. I mean, I don't want to overstate it because, because I do believe that if you care about one another, that's pretty important. Um, you know, I, I think if if you know we we genuinely care about one another, it's going to help the team perform. It's it's going to you know really contribute to the culture of the team immeasurably. Um, so I, I think it's the right thing to do to have empathy for each other and be kind to each other and uh, care about one another. I, I it's 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 it might just be semantics, but I, I just you know I roll my eyes sometimes at the notion that. You know, we describe ourselves so frequently as a family when family is, as you point out, Mike, it's it's unconditional where high performance teams are highly, highly conditional. Um, You know, there's a there's a requirement to contribute to the middle, to do your job, um, to perform, um, to to put your guts into it. I mean, you you can't really research um, a high performance organization of any type where you don't you don't come to that um, conclusion that there's a lot of conditions here and it's not right for everyone but those conditions help this help this organization operate and succeed and and I think that that's how high performance teams are I I, I think they're highly conditional um, and I, that doesn't mean they don't care about one another. It just means that it's not, it's not like you've got to accept me for who I am. Um, and if that means, you know, I'm, I'm not, you can't tr- trust me or if I'm not uh, punctual or if I break rules or if I, if I don't give full effort, you've got to accept that. That's not true. You don't accept that in high performance athletics. Meaning that people get fired. People get fired. People get cut. People separate from the team. Um, coaches and players, right? It's it's, it's it, there's an expectation in a high performance team that 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 everyone is putting everything they have into it. How do you how do you technically or tactically how do you pull out the best in people? Well, I, I think there's there's you know there's probably various you know various methods. I'm more interested, to be honest, about trying to learn over time. And and I don't think it's something that you you know during the recruiting process. And sometimes it might take a couple of years. But to really know, you know, the mentality of an individual, their their athletic makeup, their athletic strengths, and, and to be able to build an approach to playing the game based on their strengths. You know, that's... That's pretty powerful. I mean, every conversation I've ever had with a superior, uh, typically, you know, I'm on the other side of the desk and people are telling me, 
you know, what are the things that I, I need to do better? And, uh, you know, I, I've never wanted to be that person necessarily. Um, I mean, the fact is there's some requirements in any sport and you have to do the requirements well. There's basic skills that you have to be able to execute. But beyond that, I think building the team, it's about building building an approach to playing, a technical approach based on what the, the players can do anytime, anywhere. And therefore, you know, it, once you get down to the individual level, it's the same thing. It's, it's build a blueprint to play in the game based on what they do well. And and in some point, sometimes you, you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to um, really understand what somebody does well, maybe even better than they do. Um, and, and the process is, is you sit across from one another and you have notebooks out, you know, no phones, no laptops, just notebooks and a writing instrument. You know, I have a friend that says, you, you, you know, you code the brain writing longhand. And, uh, and I, I think you just make lists, you know, what are the things that you're, you're doing well? And, and a player might say, well, I'm, you know, my ball handling skills are good. And, and, and if you, you agree, you say, yeah, they're good. They're good off either hand. Your left hand passes is remarkably good. Your right hand pass is very accurate. You weight the ball very, I mean, you, you need to be able to do more than just, you know, create a line item of handling. You know, you need to be able to touch it, taste it, smell it, be able to really make that skill come alive. So where hopefully at the end of that process, that modeling session, if you will, where you really sit down and you model an approach to playing based on what a player does well, you 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 come away with um, with something that can be leveraged. Um, you know, a skill set that um, they know they have. They know they can do it anywhere, anytime. They have confidence in that skill set, and now it's time to leverage that for the good of myself and my team. Okay. So I'm imagining that you sit down across from an athlete and you've done the lonely work first to be able to think about what makes them special. And then what I'm just hearing now, it sounds like tactically you ask them, Hey, what are you good at? And then, so then you hear them first. Is that how you do it? And then they say, I've got good handling skills. And then you, because of your frames of reference and your lonely work that how you thought about that person, you take it deeper. Yes. And then you work to get the fabric of it in such a, so clear that both of you can nod your heads and say, I understand the fabric of what we're talking about. So it's not conceptual. That's right. Okay. And then you build a strategy around that person to position them in in yeah, to push position them for success. That's right. For okay. their personal success. Personal success. Is that when you say personal, is that different than um, sports success or personal inside of sport? Um, it, it, it means that you could have two players playing the exact same position and it's really a coin flip, which one of them is better. Um, but they have very different skills and, and it's really, let's say it's tackling and, and let's say one of those players has great range and they really get around the field and they make a lot of tackles. And maybe the, the the player that they're competing with doesn't have the same range, but their tackles are more forceful. Their tackles have a a higher quality to them, and in the, the fact that they might change the game. So maybe half the tackles, but those tackles are so forceful that they create turnovers potentially. I don't know which one of these players is the best, but but I want them to both play to their strengths. I want them to know what their strengths are and I, and I want them to play to them. I don't want, I don't want the player 
that is has a lot of range to their game to try to be the other person. I want them to be themselves. So, so I think the blueprint is personal to them. And do you, when you coach people, do you try to shore up their weaknesses or how much time do you spend on that? It's fluid, but 70, 30 or so, right? I'm, I'm always trying to keep, keep some kind of a ratio in the back of my head that, you know, what I don't want to do is build this long list of all the things you can't do. Now, there might be a couple things on that list that you're not going to get on the field until you do these things. So we're not going to be able to ignore them. We're going to need a lot of honesty in this kind of audit modeling session. Uh, it's going to be important that we can be direct. And uh, But what we're not going to do is we're not going to talk about the ninth most important thing you're not doing well. That's we're not we're never going to go there, and 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 I do think that people should improve over time. I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't draw a paycheck unless I can develop athletes. So we we should have a training curriculum, which is uh, going to acquire new skills, and over time we should get better. We should move deficiencies, you know, into the asset column over time. Well, I just what I don't want to do is always be chasing deficiencies, and and not putting enough time into strengths and how do we leverage strengths? You know what I found is with um, the higher level the sport or the more intense the person is to achieve or experience high level sport is that if they're paying attention to their deficits and the coach is amplifying their deficits and it's no, it, it's not like they purposely want to create the scenario I'm going to create, but it's easy to find the things that are not working well. You know, they scream yep. at you, right? And when a coach says, hey, listen, I really want us to work on A, B, and C, and the majority of those conversations are about getting better at A, B, and C, that the athlete walks away saying, yeah, I, man, I'm not really that good at A, B, and C. Then when it's time to compete, that's the programming. I'm not sure if I have what it takes because the last 200 days of training, I haven't had what it took. Right. And so that sets up this model. I don't. You're nodding your head like, yeah, yeah. Th like that makes sense. I, to I'm you. nodding my head like you should come talk to my team. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm no. from the McAfee clan, right? And and I have to force myself to be positive sometimes, right? It doesn't come natural to me to to not be the guy pointing out mistakes. Um, and I think I probably spent a fair bit of my career being only that person on the way to winning championships, mind you. Um, so I completely agree with you. And, um, you know, I can, I can wear out my welcome pointing out all the things we can do to get better sometimes. And I, I've got to, um, I've got to find some balance in my coaching. I need to have you come in and, and, and talk about that. <laughs> it, it's really hard. It's really hard to do to find what's good. Yeah. And especially when, um, the adult mind, you know, the, the, the cognitive brain of ours that we're straddled with is always scanning the world to find what's wrong and broken and dangerous and hostile. Mm -hmm. That's how we survived to override that, to find what's good, what could be good, what's amazing, what's an opportunity. Right. It does take a lot of discipline to do. And, and so that, that's the word discipline. Yeah, right? it does. Yeah. And so that's why we um, spent a lot of time thinking about we, it's like the, the folks I work with coach Carroll from the Seattle Seahawks and the team of folks that we work with about how to program and train optimism. Mm -hmm. Because that requires us to find what could be amazing so that when we're in the trenches and it's not working, we've got that mental discipline to continue to find what could work in our advantage. Right. As opposed to saying, there it is again. See, we're not, 
we're down by 42 points. How are we going to get out of this hole? Right. We, we should just call it in now. But we can win a game and we can win a game pretty substantially. And we're in the meeting room the next morning. And, uh, and it's my favorite session of the entire week. And uh, I get to be at the board. And the question is, okay, guys, what do we do well? And um, guys are going to be pretty pretty stingy about putting up their hand, you know. But eventually, they understand the process. We're eventually going to have to say we kicked the ball pretty well. And then somebody else might say, well, I don't know. I don't know that we – I think we kicked the ball pretty well until it really mattered and we didn't kick the ball well. And I want that – I want that collaborative – discussion. I, I want I want the team to decide, does this go up on the wall or does it not, that we did something well? And at the conclusion of that, I'm going to say, okay, what do we got to work on? And the hands are going to fly up. The hands are going to fly up. And I'm almost going to have to take another approach now, which is, well, I don't know that that belongs up there. I think we did it pretty well. Let's not, let's not go too far with that. But the culture of the team is is going to be to identify the things that we can do well. And they're pretty good at, at, at talking about the things that we are doing well. What are, what are our strengths? What are we demonstrating that we can do well? But I love that process. I, I love that over time, they, especially the upperclassmen, they're highly engaged in this process, highly engaged. And the honesty in that room is phenomenal. If you walked in the room, you wouldn't know whether we won by 40 or lost by 40, to be honest. What you'd have is a bunch of people talking about performance and in what areas can our performance our performance improve and in what areas can you know listen three three weeks in a row this has been up here as something we've done well how do we leverage this in our next game i mean we're obviously good at this and then maybe hey you know three weeks in a row we've talked about this is something we can do better you know what do we have to do with training by way of volume and by way of exercises to you know, to put this behind us, to show some improvement in this area. Now, I, I want them to be involved at that level. Uh, I'm not going to stop every practice and ask every player what they think of every situation. I know there's some coaches doing that, but we're going to be collaborative at the right time. We're going to, you know, they're, they're going to know. I mean, you know, when that meeting's over on Sunday morning from a Saturday game, you know, come the new week, they almost know what's going to happen in training because we, we sit and we, we, we made that prescription together in that room. Where did that come from for you? You know, I, I'm, I mean, everything I've learned, I almost learned from our players. I mean, it's been an unbelievable laboratory over the years. You know, it used to be that, you know, you'd get players one-on-one -on -one and, and you hear what they had to say and it, and, and it really would influence me. I mean, their perspectives were, were, were so pointed and so accurate in, in, in many cases um, that we just I just start doing it together as a group. And now there's some people, to be honest, I mean, I'm keeping it real here, there's some people in the room going, oh, my God. I mean, I don't even know what they're talking about, really. You know, I mean, it, it's just too much for some people to, to be able to have that really, you know, this is sport is study is what this is. This isn't like I, I play a, I play a sport and the game's over and hey, I'll, I'm going to give it a lash next week as well. No, this is this is wanting to know. This is being curious. This is really creating that that performance audit where you want to know. You want to know what you're doing well and, and how you can continue to do it well and, and use it better in more situations and what are the things you got to work on. And uh, again, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's my favorite, it's my favorite session of the week, bar none. 
And, um, and I, I get to add my bits into that, which, which I appreciate. Um, sometimes if, if it's, if I think that we've understated something that has to be stated strong, more strongly, I, I do it. If, if I, if I think that, you know, we're off on the wrong track because somebody put up their hand and, you know, took us down the wrong track, I, I'm, I, I'm going to move on to the next guy. And, you know, I'm, it's important that, that there's a body of work in this session. It's not, it, it, is it important that everyone is able to have a say? Yes, it is. Um, but it's also important that we come to some real conclusions that can really help the team. I mean, this is week to week to week. And, you know, I, 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 I want to see the team improve. I mean, if we're not doing that, I mean, how, how do you justify the hours that you put into this? How do you justify, you know, being a coach? Um, how do you justify, you know, the leadership within the ranks of the team if we're not getting better? It's, it's really one of our, you know, constant performance improvement is one of our values. I mean, we say it as a value. Um, I mean, if we're not going to get better at this, you know, what are we doing? What would you hope an, an entrepreneur or a seasoned president or a CEO of a company could glean from your insights in a sentence or two or a, a, you know, a thought or two? I have thought about this, and, it, and it's, around, it's around culture, and it's around scaling culture is what it really is about because that's the hardest thing, I think, for them is, is – you know, I, I get to know every guy that joins my team, right? I mean, I, I recruit him. I mean, I think of, there's a lot of chief executives and a lot of um, people in the corner office with the best business card. They don't even know who gets onboarded anymore, right? I mean, they're they're relying on some corporate training documents and some, you know, and and the idea that you know, and I bet when they started that company, it was different. I bet they knew every person. And they all believed in the same stuff and they knew what they were doing. But over time, in all businesses, that in all organizations, really, it becomes the hardest thing. I, I use the word embedded culture here, you know, but the idea of, of being able to embed and scale culture as your company grows. And, you know, I mean, we have one office <laughs> and, and I know everybody on the team. I mean, in some ways, people should look at me and say, well, I hope you can build culture in that situation. Try it in mine. And I think that's, in, that's interesting. That, that really does point to the challenge. And then do you have a practice that helps embed culture? Talk about it and, um, and test it. Um, I mean, I'm not afraid to, you know have a young person come to the front of the room and say right up on the board, you know, one of our values and explain it to us. I mean, at some point it, it, these have to be more than just words. Cause I mean, we see it all the time, don't we? I mean, you know, we see, you know, words on the gym wall. <laughs> we, we see, you know, a section where you can, you know, hit about us and you can hear a XYZ company talk about their beliefs and their culture and, uh, their values. And, and, and if you actually pulled one of them aside and you asked about it, they wouldn't even know anything about it. I mean, these things have to be real. I mean, I, I, this is how, I mean, our beliefs, our culture, we're going to process every transaction we have, human or organizational, through those values. I mean, it, it's it, they're to be used. <laughs> they're to be used to make these value-based decisions. And and that's how we're going to use them. We boxcar them all together and we use them as a system. And I mean, you say there's five, you mentioned that I, I had five core values. Well, 
I've never been able to be asked a question about what we do that I couldn't refer back to the influence of one of those values on the question. I mean, I don't think you need 50 things. Uh, I don't think, you know, I think you can get by with three or four or five or seven or 10, but they have to be complementary, not contradictory, and they have to function as a system. They, they have to be a touchstone to guide you. They're, they're just not these wooden sayings that end up somewhere. They really are beliefs. Jack is right. A team is not a family because the relationship has high performance conditions attached to it. That condition fundamentally impacts the relationship. It's not that it's good or bad. That's too simplistic. I think it's really important just to honor it. Rather than mask that conditionality, a leader is best served by being honest, thoughtful, and direct about it. When building a relationship-based culture, be clear that the relationship is in service of a shared vision during a specific, discrete amount of time. And that, in its best form, those relationships and what you learn will carry forward in your lives after that mission is over. Clearly, that's the case with Kevin and the players who have passed through Jack's program. But framing it as a family is misleading and can definitely undermine trust. I was on a bus with a player coming back from a game and he said, Doc, relationship-based? Do you think any of these coaches are coming to my dad's funeral? I looked back at him with lifted eyebrows and created the space for him to respond. And he said, you know the answer, maybe. It's a relationship for what we're doing right now. He was right. That's an honest framing. He wasn't going to be disappointed down the road because he knew the conditionality of the relationship. And at the same time, he could also feel the care that the coaches and teammates shared for one another. It's a thin line. Is it caring in service of success or is it caring as an end in and of itself? The answer is yes and. It can be both. Just be clear about the framing. You also heard Jack Clark touch on his thoughts around scaling culture and I'm glad he brought that up because later in the episode, we'll hear a lot from the importance of culture within high-performing teams from Toto Wolff and Satya Nadella and Vice Admiral from the U.S. Navy, John Muston. I'm going to pause the conversation here for just a few minutes to talk about our sponsors. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with their co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo's doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. 
And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. Let's jump right back into the conversation. We're going to jump into a conversation with Julie Rice, the co-founder of SoulCycle and former chief brand officer at WeWork. Julie and I dug into the significance of relationship building and how to create a sense of trust and safety amongst teams, no matter the size of the organization. What's so interesting about Julie's insights is they come from someone who dialed in her approach after creating an immensely successful organization and brand. She's a great example of a leader who understood that she didn't have all the answers going in. She relied on psychological agility, learning on the job, remaining flexible, and adjusting her leadership formula as she evolved, but always returning to relationships as her first principle. I love that. So it, so you and I are going to snap into place really eloquently that I've got an axiom that I live by, which is that through relationships, we become. And it's through the, first our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with Mother Nature. No particular order in the last two, really. But the idea of like, we need to know what it's like to be in a relationship for us to fully become the person that we want to become. And it's I've, for me, relationships are hard and they're wonderful. And they require difficult conversations. Now, what's difficult about conversations is the emotions. It's not the choosing of the words, it's the emotions that are snapped to it. And so how do you do difficult conversations? And before you dive right into the heart of that, can you just shape how many people at SoulCycle at one point you were leading? 
and how many people at WeWork you were leading? When I left SoulCycle, we had a little over 2,000 employees, uh, which is ironic and funny because Elizabeth and I started the business and we were the only two employees that worked there. I absolutely never set out to be the CEO of a large company. I had an idea uh, to create a product, which was something that I desperately needed. Um, we were simply looking to create something for ourselves, finding joy and community through exercise, which was something that didn't exist. And so when we started this company with $250,000, um, we were the only people that worked there. I mean, and so when we ended up with, you know, 2000 plus employees, it was not at all what we had planned to do. And so leading that many people, um, like you had just said, you know, really took work on understanding how to build relationships and how to be a leader. And that is really um, one of the most profound things that I learned, both in my marriage and in my time at SoulCycle. I would say that those are two, um, two really fundamental uh, relationships, the one with my business partner and the one with my husband that really, um, I have put a lot of work into very intentional work, not just sort of like, oh, let's be nice to each other. Let me buy you a gift, but real work in terms of understanding how you create successful relationships. I think it's important here to take a second to highlight that Julie's commentary on leadership includes an intentionality or even an authenticity in relationships outside the workplace as well as within, that if relationships is one of your core values as opposed to a strategy, your alignment with it is vital across all aspects of your life. You don't turn it on or off depending on the environment you're in, which pulls on one of my first principles, how you do anything is how you do everything. Not surprisingly, a big part of successful relationships in Julie's experience is mindful communication, something that we talk a lot about here at Finding Mastery. Okay, so before we get to the difficult relationship or difficult conversation part, what goes into building from your experience? And you know, I'm not asking you to point to any science or any of that, like there is some of that, but what, from, from your experience, what goes into building a great relationship? Yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting because I have actually, actually this is what I'm working on for my next business. Um, uh, Elizabeth and I are working on uh, creating a new category and we're actually calling it relational fitness, uh, which is, which is really interesting and something that we've been working on and studying for quite a few years with different researchers and scientists and all different types of things. But I think that people assume, right, that, you know, you wouldn't get your dream job and then never go to work again. Um, you wouldn't run a marathon and think that you could just, you know, run a couple miles and then go out and hit it. But somehow people just assume that, you know, you meet the person that you're going to marry or you find a business partner and everything is just going to work out. And so I think there's this real misconception around, you know, the work that people need to do on relationships. And I absolutely think that there are a few skills that people can really learn um, and practice. That's the thing also, right? You know, you can't just have one great conversation and think that it was going to change an entire relationship. But we've really um, done a lot of studies on active listening, on creating containers to have conversations in. Um, there are real ways to have conversations. I think, you know, when you talk about having difficult conversations, 
what we've really learned over time is that it's not what you say, but how you say it. It starts with everything from when you say it, making sure it's a good time for the person that you're talking to, that you're not bombarding somebody, to explaining something, being the way that you feel, not judging their actions, but using the right sentence stems so that you're not putting somebody on the defensive. And then also having a conversation in a way that somebody else feels heard, that they can just sort of have their time to air out the way that they feel and they can feel understood. I think so often we are not actually having dialogues with people, we're each having our own monologue. You're letting me know how you feel and while you're letting me know how you feel, I'm already thinking I'm gonna tell you how I feel about how you feel, which is really not a dialogue at all. That's me judging how you feel. And uh, there's definitely a lot of science out there that shows us that we can create environments and we can create containers and we can, can create formats that if people are willing to practice those three things in the same way that we all have exercise regimens, in the same way that we all have diets, in the same way that we all get different types of degrees, I think people can really learn how to have difficult conversations. I love how Julie hits on this idea of learning how to have difficult conversations, as opposed to creating environments where these conversations don't exist. Difficult conversations are unavoidable. The higher the stakes, the more stressful the environment, the more likely and necessary they are. It's about learning the tools that we can use to stay in hard conversations instead of tightening up or turning away, leaning into that challenge. Approaching someone with a sticky subject doesn't come without fear, but staying open and trusting that if you're both mindful in the process, you can find resolution. That's the marker of great teammates. To the point of your first question, you know, very early on, uh, we were lucky enough to get pretty successful. I mean, our business started to rock and roll after about six months. Um, you know, we, we, we were profitable after a year. We were really cash flowing. It was more than we'd expected. I mean, we started out with this tiny little business model, really, again, doing it for the love of creating a product that we ourselves wanted to use. And sooner rather than later, we found that we had actually a third business partner. That was not working, which became an issue for us when you talk about having to have a difficult conversation, plus the fact that we were starting to have employees and bunches of them at a time. We would have 10 and then 20 and 30, and neither of us had ever you know, managed large teams before. And so we actually decided to see a business therapist, just probably the same type of person as you and your wife saw, but for your relationship. And she probably was the best, one of the best things that we ever did for the health of SoulCycle. I think that Elizabeth and I committing to work on our relationship after just one year of being in the business, it taught us to be leaders. It taught us to be listeners. It taught us to understand how to um, have conversations with our employees. And the most amazing thing it did was as we learned these skills, we were able to teach them to the rest of the organization. So we learned skills like how to empty your bucket, which is really how to have a difficult conversation, right? And the next thing we knew, we would codify it and turn it into a lesson and everybody at SoulCycle would have to, you know, spend a morning learning how to empty your bucket or, you know, how to get unstuck. Um, and we did, I'm sure this is a lot of the work that, that maybe you do with, with people, but it was fascinating. And really, we learned on the job. 
uh, which was so great, you know, and as we learned, we, uh, we actually had a great our employee number one, who sort of was a jack of all trades and ultimately turned into our chief culture officer. And she would just sort of run around after Elizabeth and I with notebooks, and we would learn something and she would codify it and she would teach it to everybody. And I think it was a combination of, you know, the DNA of Elizabeth and I being real people, people, you know, we both really, um, it is definitely in our DNA to take care of people, to connect people, to make people a priority. I think it was the combination of that DNA and all of the lessons and the hard work that we did along the way. And we had a lot of difficult conversations. As you know, having a business partner is difficult you know, sharing money and workloads and responsibilities and everybody has different types of things going on at home at different times and you want to sell the business and I want to keep the business and, you know, we should grow, we should stay the same size, we should take money out, we should leave money in. There's a lot of decisions to make together and I think that, you know, learning and really working on this relationship was one of the things that I think created not only the internal culture of SoulCycle, but I also think that it helped us to create community with our customers because we really understood how to have conversations with people. I think that at SoulCycle, because Elizabeth and I sat on top of the company and because we were sort of role models in the fact that we were absolutely willing to work on ourselves, that there we were willing to raise our hand and say, you know, I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn how to be a better leader. I'm going to learn how to have the right conversation I think that, you know, making that commitment to that, when you, when you do that, you create a space that feels safe, right? And so much of what has to happen in terms of these conversations is that they have to happen in safe spaces. And when you create environments like that for people, then your employees can have a conversation like getting unstuck where they can say the, the, to their colleague or their boss even, hey, I'm really stuck because... I, you don't seem to make me a priority. And when you cancel meetings with me 50 times a day, I can't get what I need to get from you. And so I can't get my work done, which is making me feel stuck both physically in my work and also creatively or however that is. But I think that it allows when you set the stage for people to have conversations like that, not only set the stage, but you actually make it a norm that it's kind of a requirement of the job that we are all go we used to say like nobody goes home with lumpy carpets you know at at the end of the day it is everybody's job to make sure that we're all coming back tomorrow clean nobody's going to be punished for it and you might not always get your way but people can be heard here and i think that's super important it's so clear that your purpose is for people to be better and the way that you're going to go about it was like your mission was to create an environment, a tribe that felt wonderful to be in. So you were being lifted by being a totally. co-creator of something that was much larger than you. I think that it really was, you know, from every way, you know, in every way from compensation to recognition to, you know, praise and the way that people were, were treated. It was really all about people were really rewarded for treating each other well. Um, and helping each other rise. Okay, quick break here for one final word from our sponsors and stick around because we've still got some incredible insights from legends like Jan Singer, Toto Wolf, and Satya Nadella that are coming up. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. 
and it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. That's so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. And now back to the conversation. Now let's hear from Jan Singer, former CEO of J. Crew, Victoria's Secrets, and Spanx, and also served as corporate VP at Nike for over 10 years. She spoke with us about the importance of understanding someone's individual belief system in order to inspire maximum investment. In other words, asking how can I make this ask personal for someone so he or she wants to show up every day and make a concerted effort toward our mission. The future of leadership is demanding an understanding of human psychology, how motivation really works. 
how emotions impact our decisions and how our thoughts impact our emotions, how to help a workforce align with their personal purpose in life, how to live well, to flourish with a a zest for life, both at work and at home. Now, I'm not suggesting that leaders become psychologists, far from it. Rather, that the best practices of psychology become interwoven into the rhythm of work, where we shift from extracting the best from people to helping them unlock their potential to live and perform more freely in the present moment. Like Julie Rice, Jan offers a perspective on leadership and teamwork that has informed her incredible success in corporate retail. Let's jump right in with Jan. From that from that vantage point, you have a real high regard for a person's autonomy and determination, self-determination. So that, I think, that is how you lead. Yeah, I find it important to understand what their belief systems are and what's going to bring them value, especially when they leave their families every single day to come here and make money for themselves, but also for the company, shareholders. And what is it? It doesn't matter. Like I always have parts of my presentations for them about, you know, what if, and most of my what ifs are things that they're going to find valuable that we have to work on together. It's part of like, Hey, I can, I can put any plan you want up there, but if you don't understand the value in it, and I don't mean the technical financial value, but I mean the personal value in it, you're not going to do anything I tell you to do. The Nike example I use all the time, I have a, had a wonderful, wonderful leader boss, you know, Eric Sprunk up there. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first week with him going through a strat planning session with the guys on the running team. And he was the head of footwear, like the head of Nike footwear, right? Big job. And the guys are sitting there and they're taking him through the plan. And he says at the end, you know, hey, fellas, um, <laughs> any thought about that little project around the sock liner that we talked about? And they were like, yeah, yeah, Eric, you know. We thought about that. We looked at it. We're looking at it. We're thinking about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep thinking about that. And, and they left. And I was shocked, right? I was like, what? He's the head of footwear where I come from in the East Coast. It's like the head of footwear says, do something, you do it. And so I asked him, like, why didn't you just tell them? Like, why did, why did you just tell them to do the sock liner? It's like, yeah, because they're not going to do it. Like They're, they're going to do it, but they're not going to do it with all their heart and soul. They're not going to do it with conviction. It's going to take their time off of other things that they are going to do well. And there must be a reason that I have to learn about why they think it's not important. They know running. And that was like, whoa, you know, um, you're right. You can't just come in. Like I didn't, I didn't come in graduating from an Ivy League school, confirmed that I was brilliant and therefore was going to tell people what to do. I came in with like, hey, I don't have this all figured out. I'm going to need a lot of help. How can I um, inspire people to see what I see and hear what they see and combine those thoughts? And how do we move forward together? And I really mean that because like if, I, if, I, if I'd come in with all the credentials, maybe I would have come in bossing, every, bossing everybody around. Maybe if Eric had been a world-class runner, he would have told them to make exactly what he needed. But when you're not, you have to figure out a way to really share what you're seeing and hear what they're saying and Mm. find the path in between, you know? Oh, find the path in between. Because that's my question was like when you've got an idea and then you listen to another person's idea and your idea to you, whether it's either confirmation bias or you've already made up your mind and you're just, you know, really kind of closed but want to be open to other people's ideas. Like how do you you deal with – 
when something outside of you um, doesn't quite make as much sense as what's happening inside you. And you've also, um, you value other people's opinions. Like how do you make that decision to move in the direction that you already kind of preordained? Super hard, right? It's like stopping your backswing. You're on a momentum. You see the path. You may, I I have a bias for speed. Like I work pretty quickly and I'm a pretty quick study. So I can get sometimes someplace that people can't get to yet. And that's always hard for me. Like I go, okay, I have to remember where I'm at. Got to meet them where they are. And sometimes it's a matter of time, but sometimes it's a matter of, you know, shifting. I have to really get quiet in my brain and hear what they're saying, like hear what they're saying. And even when I hear what they're saying, I have to ask a lot of questions so that I understand the essence of what they mean. Sometimes people aren't great communicators and they're not saying what they mean, but they're telling you, wait a minute, they're telling you slow down or they're telling you another way. And if I hear the other way and I still, and I've considered that already and they're not on board and I still think I'm right, then I have work to do to, help them see what I'm seeing. If I hear them and I think they might have a bigger and better idea, then I just go into it. Like, Mm -hmm. tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And generally to your point, the truth is somewhere in between. It's not usually like, holy cow, you're way off the reservation. It's usually like they build on it or it adds another dimension or, you know, you bring to them. I had the opportunity to speak with Coach Joanne McCauley, or Coach P, as she's well known, who helmed the women's basketball team at Duke University from 2007 to 2020. She was the first Division I head coach to win a conference title in four different conferences, which to me demonstrates that she understands how to build a culture, a culture that consistently brings the best out of people. It's really interesting to hear about her evolution as a leader. What remained for her throughout was a real clarity of standards for her players, challenging them to meet certain demands, to see the highest vision of themselves and asking that they be accountable to this agreement. An essential contract for a high-performing team is clearly defining the standards of optimal behavior and then anchoring individuals to that standard. Coach P's career record proves that her leadership style does, in fact, produce winning results and more enduring relationships. If we were fortunate enough to have, let's say, 15 of your athletes and not your favorite athletes that you've coached, but 15 athletes, okay, just kind of across the years and just a fun little stat. Um, that I came across, you won 150 of your first 182 games. Is that right? I don't know, but I'll trust you on it. That's a big one now. I mean, think about that number. So you were rolling. You didn't know losing. (laughs) You didn't come from that place. And I want to get to like how you did it and um, your insights and practices on how to bring the best out of people. And I, I am really curious, this is, I'm setting up this question. I'm really curious if you left a shine of regard on them or if early year, early days, it w- they were more tools in the mechanics and the machine of winning. And so if we had in those early days, the first 182 games where you won 150 of them and we had, let's say 15, 
small little room of, of your folks, what would they say about you? Oh, they would say as a young coach, I was a head coach at 26, that I definitely was a, dr- a driver, very passionate, very demanding. Um, sometimes could obviously upset them with my challenge and future image that I saw as well, certainly as a young coach. And I don't like the word you used relative to it, but it's true. Tools, you know, as a means to getting to proving oneself. I guess, sadly, at that time, you're trying to prove yourself. Of course, that's a more singular concept. And it does engender this idea that the players you're coaching are sort of the means to getting there, you know, versus celebrating the efforts. And my early teams, I was by far toughest on them. But what's ironic is those are some of my closest relationships, not just from time away, because they're they're obviously older than my other former players. But, you know, you think back and you you kind of (laughs) cringe when you think about yourself as a young coach trying to prove yourself and um, and overstepping here and there. I mean, I definitely have players that would sing my praises and I have players that would not and say that she pushed me too far. So on the support challenge mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. On that axis, I should say, mm-hmm. you were much more on challenge than support. I think I was more on challenge, pretty good on individual support, you know, okay. smart enough to seek out individuals. Um, but only later in life did I really understand how you could individually motivate a, in a team sport. So I would say my, you know, the team component's critical, as you know, um, but I got better at the individual motivators and how they were different mm. and how it's okay to be different in terms of trying to pull the group together. But I just, I, again, I look back at that time and, you know, I was supposedly a very good coach, lots of wins. Um, but if I was talking to my younger self, I would have things to say. <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> like, like slow down, mm. like don't try to, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Don't try to get it all at once. Watch your tone on occasion. You are British Italian. Um, I did swear in there, but never to a person, you know, to the group, like at halftime, if we weren't getting it done. Reflectively, I, I battled with that, the swearing thing. Part of it was actually natural. Um, I guess I had heard some words around the household or somewhere, but then part of me never wanted to do it. And so I, I, all my career, I kind of fluctuated with, with this authenticity that's so critical. And then I had a player tell me once, it works better if you swear sometimes. It gets our attention. And I thought, oh, that, you know, that's kind of interesting. What drives me a little crazy is when I see a coach um, talk to other coaches in one way and then talk to athletes in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it feels so phony. And so like that part of, for me, and I, the athletes might not know, but I think that they can probably suss through it and because they don't see the other conversations, the, the tone and tenor and mm-hmm. cadence of language and choice of language. But th- that drives me absolutely nuts. Like if you're going to be you is my point. And mm-hmm. so how else are we going to teach others to be themselves if we're putting on some sort of, I don't know, charade. 
Okay, but let me let me go back to demands. What were you demanding out of people? Uh, always effort, intensity, focus, uh, demanding that they be present-minded. Whatever was happening off the court was something different. Uh, demanding that they play off each other, respect each other, um, try to make each other better, you know, get beyond individual play, understand the past before the past that made the great play. Um, I think that that was the good thing that I was never really off base relative to what I was demanding. So if I crossed the line and tried to change the physiology, which is such a cool way of saying that relative to using um, profanity in some way, it, it was directed authentically and in, in the right space of what I was asking for relative to the intangibles. Okay. Who taught you that that's what, those are the right levers to demand? Who taught you that those nine that you just listed were the right ones? Well, part of it's your inner self combined with what you learn from mentors. So I had a mentor at Auburn. We went to a couple final fours, you know, national championship, a higher level of performance. And I could learn from him relative to that kind of presentation of demand. And I'm a military, you know, my dad was in the Navy and the gentleman I worked for uh, at Auburn, Joe Champy, was also, he was army. I had this real sense of military and duty and honor. And that was another thing I tried to pull from, extrapolate from the women is a sense of duty and honor and ter in terms of how they serve. But that also made me more comfortable, I believe, with some pretty strong intensity, you know, pretty high demanding situations. Okay, because the, in the calm of this conversation, you are demanding things that are in their control. Yes. And so that's actually psychologically really healthy to have really high standards for the things that are in your control. So I think I want to go, I want to toggle between demand and standards in just a moment and, and then go back to the values that were true. And so you're demanding of those values. What did you, what did you want them to be in service of each other? Or was it for the shirt, for the brand, for womenhood, for athletics, for like, for humanity, what, what were you laddering up to for being in service? In service, I think sort of like concentric circles building out. I mean, service within relative to their own peace of mind and what they brought to themselves. So there had to be a peace or, or a balance amongst themselves. And then of course, the next circle being the team and how they would, how they would fit and blend with the team dynamics. And you know what we do, we do to the team one of my favorite quotes, what we do, we do to the team. And then of course, broader relative to the coaching staff and folding in mentorship, you know, mentorship matters, very important there. And then getting more broad is our place as female athletes of power, women of power. If you were to help a, a room of business people become more agile. I would first ask them to think about what they are most afraid of. You know, what are they most afraid of? What, what really gets your anxiety? What really gets your breathing up to your heart space? You know, the public speaking thing, what really gets you there? And I would ask them to think about it, maybe write it down, um, or if they were able to talk about it. I mean, some people like to talk about what, what they're afraid of, but I think agility 
it, it's like a rubber band. I mean, you've got to be able to increase it and contract it and, and you can't expand it without expanding your mind and getting past your fears. And the fear factor is huge. And so, and then you can contract it a little bit for some comfort, you know, to, to, to get back to what's more comfortable for you. But it's that expansion and that pull um, that, that people don't really want to do. And so I would ask them, like a rubber band, I would ask them to work on their agility by being able to pull apart what they're afraid of. Okay. The science that supports what you just said is really strong. So you're asking them to get out into the edges of something that's uncomfortable for you. And therein lies, I, I see it more, less like a rubber band, but more like a balloon. When you blow into the balloon, it expands and then it can contract. But when you blow into it again, it expands easier. And that is like another kind of mixed metaphor that there's more space inside the, in the um, balloon and with more space, then you can be more agile. You could play a little bit more. You can access creativity and other people and whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I see it that way, but the rubber band definitely holds up as well. The balloon is better because when you initially start to blow a balloon, we've all struggled with starting. And yeah, it's hard. Once, yeah. once you blow that balloon up, I mean, it, it just, then once you get past a certain point, it blows up more easily with air from, you know, from within. And so I, I, I kind of like yours better. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We're, we're being agile. We're being agile right now. Okay. So let's go back to standards and demands. Mm -hmm. So you're demanding um, a list of things that are hundred percent under their control, which is supporting a sense of autonomy, supporting a sense of um, mastery. That's a mastery climate actually. Um, did you have standards that you had set or was it a demand for more, better? Because like the horizon or the frontier is still out there. How, how are you toggling between those two concepts, standards and, and demands? Well, I think standards, of course, you have standards relative to training, you know, bench press, push-ups. you have standards. Those are very easy for everyone to understand. The big standard is the future image of the individual. And that's the standard that a coach often has over the individual um, in terms of what I see in the future for this person. That's where the push and shove comes because somebody's own vision of themselves is often quite a bit smaller than some, you know, somebody else's, particularly a coach's vision. And so standards there and how they, how you push those standards for that particular athlete is the, is the trick. And it's, it's often getting over their own fears and their brain limit, what they limit themselves to thinking. So standards come, I think, in a variety of packages and some sure. are easily, more easily accountable than others. Uh, I mean, I know exactly, I can hear that you know exactly how you do this and this is the art. And I get asked all the time, well, so how do you help create a vision for somebody or how do you, you know, how do you capture what you think is possible for somebody because you and I can both be wrong. And I'm sure we've been wrong plenty of times overestimating, even underestimating, but usually as an optimist that sees potential in people, um, I'm going to make an assumption for you and me here both is that we'll overestimate or we're seeing what could be at a, at a very high standard, or I'm sorry, at a very high potentiality. Now, whether that can be expressed or not is another question and potential. I have such a, complicated relationship with it because it's the thing that 
can really get people turned upside down because living up to potential can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And then, but if we're going to hold each other's hands and lock arms and commit to that adventure to see if that thing that we both think is true or could be true can take place, then, then we're not alone in it and it becomes um, more of a grounded approach. And so I think, let me just answer how I do it. And I'd love to see if you can push back and say, that's, you know, there's a better way. Let me, let me, let me show you. Is that I would just use all of my might and my ability to be fully present and watch and observe and get snapshots of waiting for the snapshot of brilliance for somebody. And that can be physical or emotional or psychological and sometimes all three, but I'm using all of my might to be focused to capture the snapshot of brilliance. And when I see it, I go, oh, what if that would take place more often? What would yeah. that look like? Oh, that's the image. And then I share that with the thinker or doer. And then that's where we calibrate. It, how, how nutty does that sound to you? Or how aligned does that sound to you? Uh, very aligned. And what we okay. do as coaches, I often feel you show what you want to, you show what you want, or you want what people to be. It's not a highlight reel. You show people the action. You show them in the space that they really didn't recognize. We've all talked about the positive, negative, positive approach, you know, that sandwich approach, show a positive, show a little bit of a negative, bring it back to where you want them to be. There's a lot of that going on, obviously in film reviews and, and things of that nature. But I think, talking with athletes one-on-one, -on -one, you know, there's, they want to be reminded and see visually what, what, what they're capable of. And once you've shared that experience visual and, and shared it in the same space, then there's no denying it. And the only thing I feel that gets in the way is some blockage that often re refers back to trauma or something in their lives. And this is where the psychologist this is where you come in. This is where I wish I was, you know, had more background in this because once you remove the blockage, the freedom is overwhelming. Yeah. And, you know, if you can push someone to the point of where they hit that space and can, you know, get through it. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, the feeling. As promised, we're going to shift gears a bit from this theme of individual relationships to an exploration of culture as we hear from several notable leaders changing the model of leadership. Each of them has been tasked with managing large organizations full of high performers and, in some cases, incredibly high stakes. First up, Toto Wolff, legendary team principal and CEO of the Mercedes AMG Formula One racing team. Toto's incredible success has definitely not gone to his head and you'll hear how committed he is to creating a culture of consistent improvement, to mitigate complacency and to inspire his team to continue to operate at the upper limits of performance. And then when, when you talk about shaping success and failure, how I've asked this question a lot and it's me trying to sort it out. What does it mean? What, like, how do you think about success off the top of your head right now, where you are in your life? How do you articulate or think about success right now? For, for me, it's very easy. It's about winning Formula One world championships. 
all dead. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's Just, a very simple target. And how, how many times have you done it? Three times. Yeah. Three driver championships and phenomenal. three constructor championships in a row. And okay, so winning one is a real challenge. Back to back to back, it's a whole different category. Has been done in the past, so it's not like that. You can say that is extraordinary achievement. I think it's not bad, and uh, it's. <laughs> it, I I would say we we are we are part of the better group, mm-hmm. but we are in a particularly uh, interesting situation now because no team has ever won back-to-back championships in an environment where the regulations have changed dramatically, and that's happened from okay. 2016 to 2017. So we've just done our first race. Oh, so what? So winning back-to-back or multiple championships inside of the, the regulations. So you figure out the game early. Some teams yes. have figured out the game, the game inside the game inside the game, and then maximize the return. And now you're having to retool, maybe probably literally, your approach and the mechanics of having a great car and a great system. Yes, if you, if you haven't head start it's easier to maintain that tiny advantage in an environment of marginal gains that, that can um, help you through a longer period but when the if when the rule change it provides um opportunity for your for your enemies as well for your competitors and risks for yourself if you have been the benchmark and therefore we embrace that situation it is actually it came at the right time after three years, there is the risk of getting used to results, setting your expectations in the wrong way. Uh, complacency is a word that is easily said, but it's a very subtle danger. It's just lacking motivation, lacking objective objectives. And if rules change and you know that you are going to face adversity, uh, adversity, um, that's a that provides a great source of energy for you for, for many it provides for, for all the for all the people here in the team is that something you've selected for or cultivated in your culture is to look forward to challenges instead of being overwhelmed by them is that something that you look for specifically yes it is a culture that you need to um, embrace in a sports team and you need to live words you know everybody can put words on a powerpoint and present them but you need to really embrace that every year every day and and live it every day and cascade it through the organization and uh, i had an interesting encounter with our chief designer a couple of weeks ago when we faced those first test days and they were not easy bits were breaking off the car um and I came into the into the design office, and everybody was busy fixing the car, and it just was a dif- difficult phase. And he said, "That is so exciting," and and that is exactly the mindset you need to have. You need to be able to recognize your own um, your mistake, your own mistakes, and your own failure. Only that is gonna make it able for make it able for you to assess them and avoid them in the future and grow. This is something which we are really working hard uh, within the team is to have the ability of pointing at the problem, um, uh, blaming a decision or a blaming situation rather than blaming a single individual. And you need to have a safe environment. People need to make, be sure that they are allowed um, um, to stand up and say. I've done a mistake and it's something 
um, I see all our senior guys doing within their groups. I have some amazing experiences, meetings where the most senior guy uh, in, the, in the room starts the meeting by saying, I screwed up. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have decided that. And you can see all the people junior to him start to pick that up. And you create a culture where you can really get rid of problems rather than hiding them. And we have a motto that is see it, say it, fix it. And whenever there is difficult things coming up, I try to, you know, I tend to, to use that and, and say somebody speaks up, uh, his boss gets angry about it because, you know, that is difficult to, sometimes to cope with that situation. And then reminding yourself that it, it, this is part of um, our mindset is, is good. I'm, I'm very skeptical about about my own achievements and um, generally very skeptical skeptical of whether what we do is good enough. Uh, but then I have great confidence in the in in the people within the team. I know that they can they can fix it. And for myself, I think it is important to, to surround yourself with individuals that you trust that you providing them with a safe environment so they can speak up. So how do you develop trust with others? How do you do that? I want to go back to the, because this is, there's you and I have a trust and that's why I think part of this was easy for you to say. How do you develop trust in a harsh environment where if there's not success, there's public awareness, there's financial cost. Like how do you develop trust amongst your team members? When in, in even even deeper than that, when you've got two drivers that are competing for the same thing, and you're you're in some ways responsible for creating success for both, but only one really gets the success that maybe that they wanted, which is to win. Trust isn't established by words, clever sentences. Uh, trust needs 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 actions, and uh, trust happens. Um, uh, or grows in those difficult moments when the other person realizes they can rely on you because you haven't let them down, although it would have been easy to let them down. And I had a, I had a situation here when I, once I, when I started at Mercedes five years ago, I had this, I held this, what seemed to me a great speech at the beginning of what I would want to achieve here and how I would protect the organization and, and uh, everybody left the room and nodded and no, no, everybody, how do you say, uh, acknowledged, mm -hmm. not nodded. And um, at the end, there was a, a guy from the machine shop that, that left the room and I said, bye-bye. And, and he turned towards me and said, nice words. Let's see where, where that happens. And, and that is very true. Uh, there's a lot of opportunists out there that stay, say nice stuff that make make up nice stuff but uh when times are getting difficult they will be the first ones to protect themselves and um, blame somebody else and uh, that is the moment you can build trust and that is gonna be sustainable that is gonna make a relationship sustainable and long-term sustainable yeah it's so well said where'd you figure that out must have read it in one of your blogs or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> We're starting to hear about how cultivating a strong culture is imperative to building high-performing teams. 
from Toto, we learned that his F1 team is encouraged to embrace challenges, to find the excitement that lives within it. He also indexes on accountability with the understanding that owning one's mistakes requires an environment where it's honored, not condemned. The culture that he's co-created at Mercedes thrives on trust, each member having self-confidence, but also real confidence in their teammates, knowing they're all committed to meeting the challenges with action and not promises, having each other's back, even in disappointment, and knowing that winning means little without the right mindset behind it. Someone else who understands how culture contributes to a company's success is Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. In this conversation, you'll hear how Satya and his team are creating a purpose-based and learn-it-all rather than know-it-all culture with a vision that compels creativity and collaboration and the ability to redirect and improve when the moment calls for it. You know, I've been at Microsoft for really all my life, essentially, 25 years. And the thing that I've come to realize is companies are also, like people, uh, have a core identity. Um, and uh, we do well when we pick and do things that fit uh, with uh, our core sense of purpose. Um, and that's really uh, what you see us uh, really exercising a lot more at Microsoft, being both proud of uh, who we are and what we do, uh, but at the same time also having a culture that pushes to learn, to renew, uh, so that we can express ourselves and express this identity in more meaningful ways to have impact. So that is rich. Like what you just said could be dissected in 14 different ways, but the, the main words about purpose and meaning, where did you come to understand that purpose is so important? Is that from your introspective arc of growth yourself? Or is that from studying people that do extraordinary things? Like where did that come from you? I mean, quite honestly, for me, a lot of it is something that I've learned as I've grown in this company. For example, one of the things uh, that I write even in the book about was virtuous cycle that gets created in successful companies between the original idea or concept uh, that you had, the capability that you built around it, and the culture that implicitly grows. And so in some sense, you get into this amazing lock uh, between your concept, capability, and culture, and round and round it goes. Except there is no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. You run out of gas at some point on the idea or the concept. You would have had to build capability long before its conventional wisdom to go after even new ideas and new concepts. And the only thing that enables you to do that is culture. And so that's why I felt that coming in as a CEO, having grown up inside this company, I went back and essentially pattern matched and said, hey, when were we uh, at our best and when did we go astray? And it was always when we were purpose-driven, mission-driven, and we had a culture which allowed us to build capability. And that's where we have anchored, which is we really need to have those two necessary conditions. It's not sufficient because you ultimately have to build great products people love and what have you. But you're not going to even get to do that if you don't have a sense of purpose and a culture. Okay, so 
that maps almost identically to how people develop. So you're taking basically the insights on how people grow and mapping it into an organization. Like you said at the, at the start of this conversation, that they're very much similar. Do you see that the organization has one heartbeat, one mind? Are you speaking it that way with, with having all the sensitivities that every human is completely individual? Are you speaking as if it was one body? You know, I said that's an interesting one. I've not thought about it as um, that, which is, in fact, it is. You need um, amazing amount of diversity, diversity of skills, gender, ethnicity oh, that yeah, makes up sure. a successful organization. Because otherwise, uh, if you really take take our mission of empowering every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more, so if you really take that to heart, then you have to represent the planet. But having said that, then you do need to come together as a collective where that collective also has an identity uh, and it's captured in our mission. So for example, when we say, wow, we're going to think about people and organizations very explicitly, that means even in any product we create, we think about the institutions people build that may even outlast them. It comes as a first-class software construct to us. That's a collective attribute of Microsoft. Another one that's ingrained in our business model and in our mission is it's not about celebrating any technology breakthrough of ours. It's about what people do with our technology. It can be a student writing a term paper, a developer writing an application, or a small business becoming more productive, or a public sector institution becoming more efficient. That's what we celebrate, not just some technology for technology's sake. That's the collective identity. So I think you're absolutely right in saying that what binds us, what gives us that ability to think as one is that sense of purpose that's shared. Okay. The reason I want to ask that is because I want to try to understand your model of how you've done something extraordinary. And I think that if I understand your process well enough is that you challenge and harden ideas with your peers. And you work with them to make sure that it's a lockstep approach where they understand what you're wanting to articulate or wanting to activate. And then so you have this way that you bring people along with you. Or maybe it's their idea, but you know how to you know, bring the entire organization along. So that's what I wanted to understand is like, yeah. is it intellect first and then intuition or intuition first and then back up to intellect? It sounds like... Mm. It's a feedback loop between the two. So I don't know what's the thing that starts. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, it's definitely... Uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't even know whether I'm explicit about it because I definitely can build on other people's ideas and that's the synthesis part. Yeah. Uh, but then you can add to it because one of the things I've realized is, you know, one of the greatest powers, uh, which is a force multiplier, is to be able to take one person's idea and another person's idea and make it more powerful uh, by bringing them together. It's not to say, I mean, you just talked about even, say, our leadership team uh, and the dynamics. I've come to realize even four years into it how important it is to use the collective bandwidth. Uh, and it's that that's an art, and I'm imperfect at it at, at best. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, the thing that I catch myself more often than not is uh, showing more impatience, uh, which is a problem because when you're impatient and you're made giant leaps, but the team is not yet there with you, uh, it's all to a waste. Uh, and at least what I find myself doing perhaps is I can at least you know, acknowledge those mistakes, not maybe as efficiently as I should be, uh, but I'm getting there. And that's... Can your staff do the same? 
is the are are you creating a culture where they can also raise their hand and say, "Hey, I made a twenty million dollar mistake," or "I made a massive mistake that caused lives, you know, jobs and whatever." Uh, like, do you encourage that as well? And I mean, I I I I completely in my book that kind of intellectual honesty is something that, quite frankly, Steve and Bill. Like, if anything, I've learned from them is that. I mean, they had just such brutal intellectual honesty. Uh, there were two people whom I could see, wow, they just would call it as they saw it. And uh, and they would be willing. If you push back and uh, and you actually were right, they, they'll acknowledge it. Uh, but you had to be right. Uh, so they had just, uh, you know, I think that's something growing up at Microsoft. Uh, you could make mistakes. Um, and, and you know, some mistakes would be such that, you know, you, your, your career could be in jeopardy. But it's better uh, for you to acknowledge those mistakes uh, because that's how, we, you know, we individually get better and, and the company gets better. Last question. Thank you for your time. How do you articulate, think about, or even describe the concept of mastery? I think... For me, it comes down to being in touch, deeply in touch with what gives you purpose. One of the things that I say a lot is, what if you sort of took what you do at Microsoft and flipped it and you said, hey, I don't work at Microsoft. Microsoft works for me. And that is because you are someone who has a particular passion, a particular personal philosophy, and you're able to, in fact, turn what is considered work into an instrument of you realizing that deeper meaning in pursuing your personal philosophy or passion. And to me, mastery is that, that ability to lead a more purposeful life uh, and then take all of life uh, and turn it into that platform because I think that's all we have. And so you might as well make use of it. You're a legend. Satya is a legend, perhaps the most important CEO of our generation. I love that commitment to honoring the individual, celebrating diversity within an organization, but also identifying the collective identity that brings both motivation and meaning to the overall efforts of the team. It's clearly no small feat to consistently see that through in a company of Microsoft's magnitude and influence. But as we all know, their enduring success would indicate that Satya has found a style that works. Okay, when we talk about collective identity, one high-performing and extraordinarily substantial team comes to mind, the U.S. military. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Vice Admiral John Muston of the United States Navy Reserve. This conversation was so rich. It ended up being two episodes, but I wanted to share a piece of it with you here. Building high-performing teams on a global scale, when the stakes can't be higher, is something that Vadim Mustam has spent his career fine-tuning. Take a listen here to some of his wisdom. Let's talk about some frameworks yeah. that make sense to you. And then mm-hmm. I also want to double double click on the idea of like how to help create a yeah. vision and then cascade that vision. Because that's exactly. a super practical. And I'll tell you how I do it. Sure. Um, not at the scale, of course, you're doing yeah, yeah. it. But are there models that you could, that you think through that have been meaningful to you 
when it comes to leadership? Um, there certainly are. I mean, there are some that we, I would look at as a problem-solving framework. I mean, we use something called Demaic. I don't know if you're familiar I don't know with Demaic. No. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, make sure I look that up. Though. Well, and and it's interesting that um, that this is something that we are investing heavily in training all levels of our teams. I mean, from the most senior person to the most junior person, and that that framework is important to us because, again, as it relates to problem-solving. I just don't feel like we've got the time or the bandwidth to flail. You know, we want to be ruthlessly efficient in addressing the root causes of problems in ways that is commonly understood. So in my case, what I tell people is, here's how I want to take a brief. You know, I have some basic expectations before we sit down to talk about an issue. And and I want the problem statement to be explicitly stated. Because what I've learned over the years is, sometimes I get a 40-page PowerPoint deck that talks about all the reasons that the world is hard, and yet there's nothing actionable in there because they're trying to boil the ocean. Instead of saying, the root cause problem is the following, and there are 10 stakeholders involved, this is what is required to fix it, here's where I need your help, or I don't need your help, but I want you to know what we're doing. And and after agreeing on the problem statement, like a lot of times we don't get past that first slide because <laughs> I'll say, I don't think you put enough effort in the problem statement. Yep. So, And that is drilling down to the... To the, the central, root cause, the yeah, root cause. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and not treating the surface symptoms, which it's easy for us to leak, leap into activity and say something broke, slap some duct tape and bubble gum on it and declare victory. When in fact, what we really need to do is think about why did this happen and what was it systemically? You know, in many cases, when we're talking about human beings, there's a degree of variability that we have to accept. But I always look at it as kind of the owner of the system to say, what could I have done differently to either train or enable the people to perform better. That's your central question. That's that my question. Ask, well, right? I, I look in the mirror every day and say, okay, someone, it would be easy for someone to say this sailor did something stupid and we should throw the book at him. My first thought is, what could I have done differently that might have prevented the decision that that person made? And again, I, I just, I agree, or I assume that no one wakes up saying today I'm going to do dumb things. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I don't think people are the um, villain in their no, own story. No, of course. Yeah, right. Of course. But I wake up and I, and I think to myself, okay, today I get to make some decisions. One is, am I looking for the good in this day or am I looking to complain about all the things that are difficult in the day? And so the other thing that I realize is I've got a staff and I've got a team and they're looking at me. And if I come in and I am moping and grouchy and pissed, they're going to be too. Instead, I want to greet them every day with a sense of optimism, like, hey, I don't care how hard this challenge is that we're dealing with, we're going to figure it out and it's going to be awesome. And if you want to be a member of this elite, high-performing team, then that's the way you carry yourself and you work that down echelon with your folks too. So in order to participate, you know, I'm, I'm pretty candid saying, I only want high performers on my team. And Granted, in the Navy, sometimes we are forced because of timing and, you know, uh, inventory issues. You don't always get to pick everybody that you work with. But my expectation is we're starting from an, from an, uh, an opening salvo where I say, welcome to the team. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I greet everyone on my staff uh, within the first week of their arrival. And I sit down with them and say, okay, you're coming to work in my manpower shop. Thrilled to see you. Your reputation precedes you. I've read your biography. I got a couple of questions about where you live and what are your interests. Just so you know you're relieving a person who was the best in this job that I've ever seen. And my expectation is you're going to be better than him. And if that doesn't sound good to you, then now's the time to mention it to me because I can find you another job. 
But my hope is that you're going to fit in and you're going to pick up that baton and run fast. And then honestly, everyone says, I can't wait to contribute, sir. I mean, I've never had anyone go, you know what? I thought maybe I don't want to be here. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. So that's a, yeah. so we've got a model that we work from support then challenge. Right. You're coming right out the gate with a challenge, with a standard. Maybe it, it is. And then so how do you think about that idea, support then challenge? I, I like it very much. You I do mean, like yeah. In, in fact, I always I, – I describe this uh, approach – when I do um, meetings with my team, when, when they're new, when we do kind of an indoctrination period, mm-hmm. I, I'll say, here's what you can expect from me. I, I am going to envision, enable, and encourage you. That, that, so Envision, we'll, enable, encourage. Encourage, yeah. So we're going to talk about what we want to achieve. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Admiral, where'd you, because that is like, that's something that I don't like the word enable for me personally, but um, the envision and encourage bit is so so right down the center of, of how I've operated, it, almost intuitively. I don't have a model for that. I, I mean, I made it up, so, you did, so yeah. I will give it to you. No, yeah, well, I want you to use this. <laughs> I, great. <laughs> yeah. But it feels, for yeah. me right now, hearing that from you, it's like I, I feel not validated. That's not the right word, but I feel like I've been doing this part right. You know, Right. So I, I really appreciate that you're doing sure. it that way. So the envision and then the encouragement part, I really get. And I want to hear how you think about enabling. Sure. So enabling is I, I'm going to give you the tools you need, the training. You know, what does that mean? Hey, in some cases, it's it's the hardware. It's the connectivity. If you're going to be in the field, you need to be able to communicate. I mean, that's that's a non-trivial task. So so the enabling piece that's is enabling. in order for you to do your job, I don't want you to say, I had a million great ideas and I was ready to go, but the system didn't allow me to do what I wanted to do. So that's that's the enabling part. Okay. Uh, the encouragement can be problematic for me in my own head when it's not authentically sharp as well. Like I want, so encourage is not like pat on the back. Encouragement for me also is, wait, you can go a little further. You oh, can do, yeah. you can go a little deeper. Yeah. You know, you can stand your ground a little more clearly or kindly. Sure, whatever. Like, sure. Is, is there a sharp edge to? There is. It's, okay, and it, but it's 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 interesting. I mean. I, I, I don't think folks who work for me are going to say, oh, my God, he's a tyrannical ass. Yeah. You know, I, I think most folks would say. Is that, I, is that your epithet? <laughs> no, 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 it's going to be no, my no. tombstone. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I think they're going to say, I, I love working with him. I learned from him. It, it was a great tour. But I will tell you, I heard one of my subordinate commanders talking to his folks saying about me. He's got he's got great ideas and we need to get moving. He's also very impatient. <laughs> and so so the sharp edge of it is. Okay, we've agreed on what that vision is. Come back to me. The next the next discussion with us ought to be either I'm on it and it will be done by Friday or by June or whenever it may be, or I need your help somewhere. But I don't need the daily updates with status. I mean, I trust you. I mean, the enabling piece is you got the tools you need, right? Do you need additional support, top cover, up echelon communication? You know, where do you need me to roll in on your behalf? If not. Then why isn't why isn't it done? Do you give trust or earn trust? I start from a basis of I assume that everyone is trust. Assume best intent. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Positive intent. And and then I say though, in fact, when everyone checks in to my staff, I give them a little sheet. It's basically what to know about working with John. Oh, you do. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's and, cool. And and one of the things I say is, we all start from a basis of trust. If you lose it, it will be very hard to get back. So my my point is, I will give you the benefit of the doubt, but if you take advantage of that or you lose my trust, 
you probably need to go yeah. somewhere else. So you give trust. And then when trust is broken, yeah. it, it, the water table goes to negative or does it go to like so low that it's... It, I mean, it depends on the, on the, on the nature behavior. of the, uh, yeah, of right. the break. Okay. But, but the point being, we start from a foundation of we're all trustworthy. We're all working together. Mm -hmm. We you know, assume positive intent. Um, but, but as it relates to the telework thing, what, the reason I bring that up is I say, look, I trust you all. There are going to be times when your child has a bloody nose at school or needs to go to the doctor or you need to meet the cable guy or your car breaks down. Go take care of that. I, I'm not worried about you being productive and I'm not worried about you being gone. You know the work that you're responsible for and you're accountable for. And as long as you can do it, I don't care where you do it. It's like you treat them like adults. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Um, on the trust thing for one, one more bit, I think we all have this water table of trust and it's based on our genetic predisposition. It's based on how we're raised. It's based on the neighborhood we grew up in, the geographic location. And, um, I think we have this water table of trust that we come into relationships with. And we've got this idea, and this goes back all the way to Aristotle, like long time ago, there's three legs to trust, ability, benevolence, and authenticity. So if you can walk the walk and talk mm -hmm. the walk, like I should probably trust you. Like you can get, yeah. you can get kind of get it done. Are you in it for me as well as you are for you? The benevolence, are we in right. this together? Or are you trying to take all the chips off the table? Yeah. You know, is this just for your gain or is this, am I involved in your success as well? That's benevolence. And authenticity, are you going to show up consistently across conditions, bringing, being your very best? You can wobble on any of these, but if there's enough consistency across those three, like that's, I think trust has to be earned. So it's interesting that you you want to give it. I want to, I want to, I, I think I'm more afraid of being burned. Than, yeah. than maybe you are. And that probably has to speak to my childhood. And so, and, and I want to earn other people. I'm not saying that I shouldn't earn. You should give it to me, but you got to earn it. I'm no, not saying no, it that no, way. No, like, I understand. Let's, let's, let's get in the mud together yeah. and let's see if those three hang up, uh, hang together, even when it's messy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because one thing that we didn't talk about with my approach and this nature of the transformation we're taking was, is really... Uh, comfort with risk or risk tolerance. And and I've, as an entrepreneur, have been very comfortable with the fact that, hey, we're going to try some things. They're not all going to work perfectly. And so even as it relates to the nature of trust, I will say, I will start. It, I, it is probably born with confidence that even if it goes south, I can solve it or I'm okay with it, you know? And so I have that actually. I have yeah. a high level of self-trust. Right. Like if it goes sideways, I have a deep, like, deep roots that I'll sort that out too. Yeah. yeah. So that way, like, I feel like you can bet on me. I'm going to bet on me that, and I don't say this arrogantly, like, I feel like there's a privilege and an honor to be able to be in service in that way for, for people I care right. about. Right. And so you can bet on me because I got these deep roots of we'll, we'll keep going like <laughs> relentlessly, uncommonly, you know, like we'll keep, so you have a high self-trust. So how does that relate to, to your teammates? I think the sense is that it allows me to transfer that risk. Well, the way I describe it to them is I'm comfortable delegating to you and I will accept the risk. I want you oh, to feel cool. comfortable oh, trying cool. it. Yeah. And I'll provide the air cover. Oh, I like, like if that. this doesn't work, I'm the one who's going to say, "Hey boss, we tried it, it didn't work." You know, but that I don't cool. I don't want you all to artificially filter things out that I might say, "Great idea, try it." 
So, so by saying, look, I'll transfer the risk to me. You try it. I'll accept the risk. That's cool. That's, I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. So when, when you think about building teams, you're giving trust. I want to say that, and you're right. taking the responsibility for the risk. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. especially as a leader, I would say, you know, the risk is re- resident with me. We always say, if it works beautifully, the credit goes to them. Yeah. This is like 101. Exactly. If, ever, if a microphone's yeah. ever in front of you yeah. and there's ever a moment. Like, exactly. And we fail miserably. It was my fault. I yeah, didn't resource right. yeah. them properly or train them properly. Yeah. I should have known better, you know, but, but it's true. I mean, that's how you get teams to trust you too, is to say your failure is, it, you're never going to be critiqued for trying. What an outstanding group of humans. I feel so incredibly fortunate to have been able to sit down with each of them over the past several years to understand how they organize their inner lives, the mental skills that they use to excel, and their most meaningful practices that allow them to keep leading at the tip of the arrow. It's these practices, often evolving as teams do, that help create the kind of space and freedom and capabilities that are necessary for high-performing teams to do what they do best. We started with this idea that having an authentic understanding of the members on a team and leveraging that knowledge in caring ways not only enriches each individual's experience, but brings forth their best qualities, their highest efforts. Whether it's developing confidence and encouraging individuality, learning the values and beliefs that give someone meaning, or actively listening to and implementing people's perspectives. Driving success by building strong relationships is a common theme among these leaders and the high performance of their teams. These leaders are a testament to the axiom we live by at Finding Mastery, that no one does it alone, that we need each other in order to achieve and experience the extraordinary. It's also important to highlight that the practice of turning inward and cultivating a sense of mindfulness and curiosity and a real commitment to accountability is also part of the mix of these extraordinary leaders. Prioritizing psychological safety so that people can own their mistakes is integral to both the resilience and the trust a team or organization needs to function well. Having the freedom to take accountability when things don't go as planned allows people to take risks, to embrace discomfort, and have confidence both in those leading them and the people they work alongside. Trust, as we have heard several times in this episode, is paramount to the success of any team, organization, or ecosystem with a shared mission. Speaking of shared mission, the other thread we pulled on throughout this conversation is culture. How the collective is as important as the value each individual brings to a team. It's important to recognize that this pursuit, building high-performing teams and understanding how to be a great teammate, has so many possible paths to a successful outcome. And we're only able to touch on a handful of those in this episode. I'm hoping that the varied insights and the common threads from this impressive slate of guests lit you up in the same way that it did me. It's been an absolute privilege to share these conversations with you over the years. And now streamlining some of them in our best of format is a wonderful gift that I'm receiving and I hope you are as well. 
please let us know what you think and if there are any topics that you feel would make a great episode. We can't wait to bring you more installments of this series. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.